Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad. And my name's Sarah. Before we begin, we want to thank everyone who has subscribed and reviewed this podcast on iTunes. We cannot thank you enough. This means so much to us. And if you head to our website, boftboft.org slash podcast, you can sign up for our e-newsletter. And you'll also see a link to purchase one of our few remaining podcast t-shirts. We have barely any left, people. Over the last couple of episodes, we have discussed the lives of Carrie and John McGavick, and we've told the story of their home being taken over and used as a Confederate field hospital during the Battle of Franklin. So this week, we are continuing the story by discussing the aftermath of the battle and the formation of the McGavick Confederate Cemetery. Joining us this week is historian and CEO of the Battle of Franklin Trust, Eric Jacobson. So the first thing I want to ask you is what was happening on the morning of December 1st? What was it like in town? Um, I, I don't know that one could ever really accurately describe or even imagine what it was like. Um, I think it was a, the whole south side of town was, was just a nightmarish scene of um, obviously death, but a tremendous amount of suffering. There are still wounded men. On the battlefield, survivors are looking for their friends. They're finding wounded pinned underneath the bodies of the dead. And so it's um, it's almost an apocalyptic scene. We mentioned in the last episode that the U.S. forces were gone. So out of the dead that remain, um, how many were, were they mostly Confederates? Oh, yeah, the vast the vast majority, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 75 or 80 percent of the dead are Southern soldiers. And so what does the Confederate Army start to do in order to deal with all the loss? Well, pretty quickly on the morning of the 1st, there there are burial details formed. And so you had small groups from almost every unit that fought here. And when I say unit, I mean all down to a regimental level. They were formed into these details, which unbelievably had to go back into the areas where they had fought. Because what they were doing was... They weren't just burying the dead. They were looking for people they knew. And I, I think that the uh, those who had survived the battle, it was bad enough um, having to witness the aftermath, but then to have to go back in and try and find people that you knew. And, you know, let's not forget, a lot of these guys have been together for two or three years. So it was a sort of heart-wrenching thing, I think, for them that morning. What could you do? I mean, what were they doing if guys were finding their, their fellow soldiers? Were they, they were digging graves. Right. So then they would begin the process of burying them. And the Southern dead were not buried in, you know, what a lot of people today would consider to be mass graves. I mean, they're, they're certainly laid out in places in close proximity and kind of side by side. But they were identified because there was this sort of visual recognition. And then as they were buried, then those graves crude and shallow as they were, were marked with whatever was available, um, big enough to carve names and units into. So it goes on all day and really probably kind of 
a little bit of the early part of December 2nd is when the process is finished. So it's about a 24-hour work detail. And so after that happens, um, what is the next... I mean, the dead are left in shallow graves. After the Battle of Nashville, the armies come back through. And, and what did they see a couple weeks later as they retreat back through Franklin? Well, I, I think it's also worth pointing out that it isn't just the Confederate dead that are buried that day. There were probably four or 500 U.S. dead. Now, they were buried by... Their fellow soldiers, although the, the recognition identification process wasn't quite the same because the U.S. troops who were captured were sort of haphazardly thrown together and were just told to bury their dead. So those men really end up in kind of mass graves, if you will. So after the Battle of Nashville, both armies come through Franklin again. And it's just it's just a ghastly kind of process. In fact, there's a soldier in an Alabama regiment who talks about coming through Franklin probably would have been December 17th, and um, it had been raining, it was muddy, and he talks about his his feet sinking down 18 or so inches into the ground, and he could feel the bodies underneath there. So it was just this awful spectacle. And, um, you know, both armies moved through town, the Confederates rather quickly, U.S. Army in pursuit. There are there are federal soldiers who wrote about seeing the graves. There's a guy in an Illinois regiment who actually moves down Lewisburg Pike, not far from Carnton, and writes about seeing the graves of Mississippi soldiers who were from John Adams's brigade um, of Loring's division, which had come right through that area on November 30th. Why did the U.S. soldiers, though, not end up being eventually reburied in Franklin? Well, that's an interesting story, um, itself and it's a it's a great example of how the truth of what had happened had had either been forgotten or had been mistold or you know just all sorts of myths years ago the story was that the u.s dead were collected um in part of the broad exhumation effort that leads to the creation of uh, stones river national cemetery in murfreesboro and a lot of the work that was done in the post-war years um, for that were, was conducted by um, USCT soldiers. Well, as it turns out, it wasn't quite that way. The, the U.S. dead um, were eventually exhumed from Franklin and were moved to Columbia. And this happens after the Confederate dead were, were reburied. There was talk of making a national cemetery in Franklin. But it was made very apparent that there was a tremendous amount of local opposition to this. In fact, there's correspondence that, that I found a number of years ago that goes on between local people. Um, George Henry Thomas in Nashville is involved in. And um, it became clear they couldn't, they couldn't be left here. They couldn't create a national cemetery. One, one man, in fact, said that they would probably have to post a 24-hour guard. Just because tensions post-war were too high in this area? Yeah, it's hard to tell what was going on. I don't. I think there's no doubt whatsoever that the Klan was involved. There were too many instances of people who were willing to sell land to create the cemetery, and then within days their minds were changed. So I think behind the scenes there was a lot of uh, arm-twisting, if you will, and the Klan would be the likely candidate. But w whatever the case, the dead were exhumed and moved to Columbia because there was already a cemetery there, Rose Hill. And there was talk of making that into a national cemetery. But eventually, there gets to be a lot of local pressure in Columbia, and the dead were exhumed again. So they were dug up in 67, 
for a second time and loaded onto rail cars and they were sent up to Nashville where they transferred rail lines and eventually they moved them down to Murfreesboro where they were finally put to rest once and for all, but for really what would be a third time. How many U.S. dead are we talking about? They moved at that point about 450 bodies that were really Franklin KIAs, but they probably moved about 600 bodies. And about how many of those would you say are identified? Maybe 50. I mean, virtually none. And, and the, the majority of those who are identified are actually from one regiment, the 111th Ohio, who in an unbelievable scene exhumed their dead after Nashville. So they were digging guys up they knew were buried in this certain area and somehow were still able to identify them two weeks later. Any indication why that regiment did that none of the others did? Maybe they had stopped close enough to where the dead were buried, which would have been somewhere, you know, near Carter House on Columbia Pike and, you know, halted long enough, got permission, dug up their friends. You know, the weather had been really cold in early December, so there probably hadn't been a lot of um, decomposition. So I want to go back to the in the weeks and months that followed after the Battle of Franklin, after the armies come back through and Franklin is largely left behind then for the remainder of the of the war, other than being in a federally occupied area. What do you think the mentality was for the citizens of Franklin who knew that they have these shallow graves on the field south of town? I don't know. I think it's largely speculative. I don't think it's much of a stretch to assume that nothing was easy. And, you know, not to be really graphic, but it was just a a stinking mess. I don't think you could escape the reality of it. Um, The whole south side of town was just, you know, wrecked. There were graves everywhere. And certainly the Carters and the McGavicks are the most impacted by it because it's on their land that many of the dead were buried. Are there any specific instances of John and Carrie helping identify the dead before the formation of the cemetery? Not a lot, but I do know that there is a, um, if it's the letter you're referring to that was written to John, um, I uncovered a letter, I don't know how long it's been, 18 months or so ago. I wish I'd found it when I was writing my cemetery book, but it was written by John to a man in Mississippi who clearly had inquired as to the status of his son. And John wrote the letter in September of 1865. So, less than a year after the battle and at least six months before the cemetery was created and he found the grave and corresponded with this man so i think for the for the mcgavicks and for the and for the carters um this was just sort of part of their daily existence it was just as i've said many times i don't think the battle of franklin ever left them describe what starts to happen as the cemetery as the idea for the cemetery starts to come about like whose idea was it uh what was the formation of that process When I wrote my book on the cemetery, I wish I could have found that moment where somebody said, hey, we're going to do this today and we're going to start work on it, you know, and get this done. There's there was nothing like that. I think a lot of it was just people talking. And I think much of it probably was driven by the same sort of basic human emotions that are kind of timeless. I think a lot of the citizens, um, especially those who were really directly impacted, just they had enough and they figured they had to do something. They had to try and. They couldn't correct everything, but they could try and do the best they could. They could try and clean it up. They could try and bury the dead in a, in a place of, you know, some permanence and, and have a, a, a respectful 
conclusion. And so I think that's really the genesis of it. Um, no doubt in my mind that John McGavick and Fountain Branch Carter or John McGavick and Moscow Carter had a conversation at some point because the dead would have needed to be exhumed from Carter property, moved to the McGavick property, which is where John donates the land. Not any doubt from the from the evidence that it was John McGavick and six or seven people in town, kind of city elders, if you will. Uh, w. W. Courtney is one of the men, and they form this really sort of. It's really it's an informal group, but it's really the composition of it was a lot like a lot like a nonprofit, you know, board. It, they had a treasurer and a chair, and you know, they they set about trying to organize and decide how they were going to raise money, what they were going to do, and. You know, they, they kept, there's a newspaper article that references they were keeping minutes to the meetings. I sure would, you know, love to know what the minutes were, oh, but yeah. I think we know enough to, we know enough to know what happened. So John was kind of the architect of this. John McGavick is the reason this happened. What do you think made him care so much? Was it simply, I want these fields cleaned up, or was it something more than that? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it was as simple as he thought that they were called to it. Maybe he felt obligated. Maybe he felt it was the right thing to do. Uh, in hindsight, this letter that he receives from Eli Capel writing and asking about his son, Robert, you know, John went and found his grave. And I think little things like that can influence people to say he can't be buried here forever. You know, there's hundreds of others like him, and they need to be really gathered up. And so they decided to that that place would be Carnton. I think in, I, I think it probably started small, but eventually it became quite a big project. So it could have been as simple as, I have the means to do it, and it needs to be done, so I'm going to make sure it happens. I think so, and I think some people are just different than others. I think the Carters found themselves in a place where they either couldn't or didn't want to, and the McGavicks found themselves in a place where they were willing or were able, and, and it just kind of worked out that way. Now, no doubt that at some point in the in the quiet solitude of, you know, Carnt and John and Carrie had a conversation as a husband and wife would and say, all right, are we, we're going to do this. Do we want to do this? Should we really do this? Because this is going to be the rest of our life. And they probably never thought we'd be talking about it, so they didn't leave behind a record. But no, no doubt that, you know, John's name's all over everything. But you do believe that Carrie was probably involved in the process at some point? Oh, no, no question about it. I mean, they were married. It's not like he could keep it a secret. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, his his status in the community, and let's be, let's be honest, it's 1866. It's going to be the man who's going to, he's the only one who can really kind of grab those reins and, and run with it, at least from a public setting. But it doesn't really matter who starts or who agrees or what, ultimately... It's John and Carrie McGavick who spent half their lives involved in, you know, one of the most unique projects in American history. And I think one of the biggest rumors that at least I hear on tour about the cemetery is that Carrie was the one who reburied the bodies. But that's obviously not true. Well, you <laughs> who know, actually did that? Well, you know, there's always stories, you know, that the McGavicks did it or she did it or they they wrote the cemetery book. And, you know, it was another example of how... The, the truth was there. You just had to have someone go digging for it. So this, this burial association or this, this group of guys, they ultimately hired a team of gravediggers. And the, the evidence indicates there were three men, three brothers, 
George Cuppet, uh, Marcellus Cuppet, and Polk Cuppet, and then a fourth man named Robert Sloan, who were hired really to do the the digging, the exhuming, and the reburying. Now there's a there's a another fellow that I think is involved, but not with the reburials. And it's uh, this guy's last name was Baugh, Charlie Baugh. Um, he was a kind of a woodworker, cabinet maker, and so he was making the boxes or the coffins. So. But it's, you know, it's four or five people that are doing the, the bulk of the work. How did they find these guys? Well, um, the Cuppets, uh, George had been a soldier. So he was a, a, he was a Texas cavalryman. And when his unit was mustered out in Middle Tennessee, apparently he just stayed. Uh, Marcellus and Polk, and they were all from Texas. So I think they must have come up here after the war or had moved here during it. It's a little sketchy on when those two got into the mix but they're all here in late 65 early 66 and they were they were basically doing like handyman work they were fixing fences and rock walls and just kind of doing whatever they could to kind of pay the bills and then um there was a bid put out and they had the lowest bid which is five dollars a body now that was the lowest bid but do you think that would have for them been a substantial amount of money at the time or was it just such horrific work that they had to charge? Because $5 isn't, is is a decent amount for then. Well, but right. when you think of what they'd be doing, then you have to right. split that. five Th- ways. Think about if you, yeah, you split it four ways, really, because the guy, I think, making the boxes is just probably charging. But they're getting like a buck and a quarter a body, which I don't know what that is, $20 or $25. But, I mean, you could, you could make several hundred dollars a day Where- because they were moving, you know, a, a lot of set, you know, they, they were moving a lot. Where do you think this money came from to pay for the cemetery? The majority of it is raised. There were there were kind of private fundraisers that went on all over the South, but they didn't raise enough money to pay the full bill because at the end it's John McGavick who was paying George Cuppet because they didn't have enough money. So he was footing the difference out of his own pocket. And there's no indication that he knew what he was getting into before this whole project? That he would end up not only donating the land, but funding a bit of it out of pocket for himself? John? John. Oh, no. But I think that if you're going to commit, you I guess you're going to be fully committed. And you've hired these guys to do something horrific, so they better get paid for it. Yeah, and, and we know that they, they got to be somewhat intimately familiar with one another because how could you not i mean john was uh, aware of the number of bodies there are a number of instances where he was reporting letters were published in newspapers about x amount of bodies have been moved and y number of bodies have been moved and now as of this date these particular states are complete and and um i th- and, and we know that he kept on a post war a, a post um, cemetery correspondence with polk the youngest cuppet um george cuppet ended up marrying a local girl who we think was the daughter of the man who was perhaps carnton's overseer so yeah they i think they they just you know they were bound together by circumstance for many months. So describe what this what this group, what this reburial crew is was actually doing. Combing the battlefield. That's what they were doing. They were covering every possible square foot of ground on which they thought someone might be buried. Now, of course, most of them are 
in that area where the federal line was located, you know, at least reasonably close to that. Not in the earthworks, but most of the Confederate dead were buried south of there. Uh, but they were going into cemeteries in downtown. I think some of the mortally wounded have been buried at the Old City Cemetery, perhaps Rest Haven, and so they were digging up bodies from there. They were going everywhere. How long do you think this took? Or how long did it take? The burials were most, the reburials were mostly completed in three months. April, May, and June. That's crazy to think. That's a, they had to be working nonstop. I think they were working six days a week. Weather permitting. So the only thing that would stop you would probably be heavy, you know, rain. And in the midst of this project, another, another tragedy struck the Cuppet brothers, right? Right. So the, the middle brother, Marcellus, gets violently ill at the end of April. Um, I think Polk Cuppet in his diary indicates that they went to church. And on Monday, Marcellus was ill. And on Tuesday, I think he was delirious. And on Wednesday, he was dead. And that's actually where Polk's diary ends. He just stops writing, really, after that. And we don't know what caused Marcellus's death, but it, it's probably not much of a, a stretch to think that exhuming bodies 18 months after they'd been buried wasn't the healthiest of work. And it kind of leads to the intimacy that the family had with the Cuppets, too, because where is Marcellus buried? Marcellus was buried uh, in the soldier section next to the Texans, which, of course, isn't um, by coincidence. They, they'd lived in Texas before the war. But even George wrote that Marcellus was buried in a walnut coffin. And um, he made some other references to friends. And so no doubt he was referring to the McGavocks. And it wouldn't surprise me if that walnut may have been from right here. Is there any other conversation that we're aware of where they decided why he'd be buried in the Confederate cemetery? Do you think it was simply he died doing this project, so we're going to leave him to rest here? Yeah, I think it was that. I think it was... Because he was not a soldier. He was not. Marcellus. He was not. And, and you know, he could, he could have certainly been buried somewhere else, but what better place to bury him than right here? Right next to some of the men he'd been helping to rebury. Next to the section, next to the Texas section, but not in it. Right. That's right. It al it always strikes me it almost like he's the last casualty of the battle. In, in, a sense. in many ways, he he was, and for many years, until the mid until two thousand five and two thousand six, Marcellus was still being identified as a former slave. How did that happen? I don't know. I really don't know. I, the best that I could tell, it was just a, a stretch, a jump that people made, you know, and, and I always thought it was sort of a patronizing story. Well, you know, it must have been a former slave who was digging up the dead. You know, that would be the, that would be who would do such work. As it turns out, um, it was nothing further, um, could have been further from the truth. It was, it was actually a, a another group of people that were doing it. Were any of the other, at that point, were any of the other Cuppets mentioned in that story? Or was no. it just Marcellus Cuppet, a former slave, did okay. this? Okay, that was, yep. was going to be my question. Did they think George was also a former slave? Yeah, just just Marcellus. Rick Warwick, who, um, who of course is just a great local historian, had pointed out to me, probably right about the time I'd started writing, that George Cuppet was mentioned in the unveiling of the Confederate Monument in 1899. And Rick said, I find it highly unlikely that 
you know, that a black man would have been listed in the newspaper in this sort of casual way. And sure enough, as, and, and remember, this is back in the day when census records weren't so readily available. And sure, you know, once I got a hold of the census record, George Cuppet was indeed not black, but white. And of course, there was Marcellus and Polk. And so the whole myth just poof, evaporated right there. And then that, that led me to the cemetery book, which um, was another myth. You know, the McGavicks had written the cemetery book, and 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 I knew just by looking at the handwriting that it it wasn't them because that it wasn't even close. And and I I long believed it was probably it was likely George. I just couldn't prove it till one day Rick again called me and said he'd gotten a letter, a copy of a letter that George had written to another brother telling him about Marcellus's death. And the moment I saw the letter, I knew that it was George Cuppet who had written the book because the handwriting was the same. Uh, just because we haven't mentioned the cemetery book yet, could you describe what that is for the listeners? Uh, it's a little leather-bound journal um, in which the names of all of the soldiers um, was entered into. Names, ranks, units, each body, whether it was identified or not, was numbered. And, and this book was given to the McGavicks when... The work was completed, and of course they kept the book the rest of their lives, and then in the either late 1980s or early 1990s, it was donated back to Carnton by descendants of the family. So, and it was likely George Cuppet who was the one recording that information originally. Oh, it's undoubtedly Cuppet. As these things go, a couple weeks after Rick had given uh, me a copy of the letter, I was scanning through microfilm in a Nashville newspaper, and I found a list of the dead with an accompanying column that said Mr. G.W. Cuppet recently presented Mr. and Mrs. J.N.O. McGavick a copy, a register of the dead. And I thought, well, there it is. You know, there's there's the proof that it was Cuppet who'd written the book and, you know, gave it to John and Carrie. So he's recording these as they're working. And what was the what was the conclusion of their work? How many men did they end up finding? 1,481 bodies. They identified about 900, which is really testament to those who buried them the first time, their friends. Because the Cuppets were able to glean enough information from still existent uh, grave markers to log the names. And I think what he did was they were probably logging everything as they went along. And then when they were totally done, he sat down and wrote out in this journal all of the information. So I, there's a question I want to ask about the total dead before we continue the cemetery story. There are just under 1,500 Confederate soldiers in the cemetery here, and there's just over 400 U.S. soldiers buried in Murfreesboro. So there seems to be a discrepancy somewhere between the total casualties of roughly 2,500 and uh, uh, just under 2,000 we have accounted for. Yeah, where are the other 500? Yeah. Some went home. There were at least a couple, two to three hundred men, north and south. Their families came from a variety of states, both north and south, exhumed bodies and took them home. So men from Mississippi, Alabama, a good number of guys from Middle Tennessee, but even families from Ohio were coming down here in the, in the winter of 65 and even as late as... Uh, the spring of 66, I know of a Mississippi family who took their uh, son back to Bay St. Louis in May of 66. So they, they got him in the right in the middle of the exhumations. 
There are some whose bodies I don't think were ever, they were never buried. Thus, there was nothing to exhume. Some of the Confederate soldiers who were hit by cannon fire, there was just nothing Mm -hmm. left. And then there's, you know, the occasional body that may not have been found. But I think, you know, the the problem is we don't really know how many were killed. I think it's probably closer to 2,400-ish. We often say 2,500, but... You know, we'll never really know what the total is. John Schofield reported 1,750 Confederate graves when the U.S. Army came through. So even 1750 minus the 1490, that's still 250, 275 bodies. Even if a couple of hundred of those guys were taken home, there's still 75 or 100. We don't know. So the the crew finishes their work um, reburying the dead. How quickly, because there was a ceremony that they had opening the cemetery. Was that right when they finished? I'm not sure what the ceremony was. I think it was just that it was open to the public. I think the well-known photograph we have is probably from that day, which from a newspaper account that I read many years ago, I think was actually on July 4th. That's what we were, when we were doing research, you found out. Any any. Indication why they picked that day of all days? I don't know. I think for, um, I think that July 4th wasn't as controversial for many Southerners as many people today would think it was. The country was reunited. And I think for someone perhaps like the McGavicks, it was maybe quite the appropriate day. So when, once the cemetery is opened, do families immediately start coming here, writing letters here? Or, and how do they hear about this cemetery? Word spread quickly. Harper's Weekly runs a story on it within months, and that's certainly no pro-Southern newspaper. The first marker, the first stone marker in the cemetery was up by the time it was opened. It was a Masonic marker that was the kind of collaborative effort of the local Masonic Lodge. Because what were the markers originally? Uh, they were cedar headboards and cedar footboards, and they lasted for the better part of 30 years. But the first stone one was put up in the South Carolina section to a guy named T.J. Bostick. And eventually those cedar boards are replaced by the stone markers that are mostly present today. And John was involved in that, right? Yeah. Yes. In the latter years of his life, as those original markers had to be replaced, there was a whole new fundraising effort. And the McGavicks were assisted by a local UCV camp, the John McEwen camp. The United Confederate Veterans? Yes, the United Confederate Veterans, which is the predecessor of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. And they helped raise money. And, of course, one of the members of that group was George Cowan, who was the McGavicks' son-in-law. So um, the the family was involved right up right up to the end, and John right up until the end of his life. And he so he funds to put the stone markers that are out there today. Um, there were, there were several states that contributed Mississippi off the top of my head. I think it was Mississippi, South Carolina, and I want to say one other state, but not Tennessee. There were several states that contributed no money. And I think between the McEwen bivouac and the McGavick's own personal fund, yes, they paid the difference and installed the stone markers that you see today, the limestone markers. So... John died in, on June 7th, 1893, and Carrie outlives him for about 12 years. She does in February 22nd, 1905. Uh, what 
role did she have in the midst of all this? Well, this is really when Carrie McGavick becomes the living symbol of the cemetery. This is the time when she becomes very widely known. And it coincides just perfectly with the with the growth of the lost cause. And so she becomes this sort of... Um, she's a real symbol of Southern womanhood. She is a widow. And here she is maintaining the graves of all of these brave Southern soldiers. She is specifically mentioned during the unveiling of the Confederate Monument on November 30th, 1899. Groups of uh, delegations, in fact, there's a group that comes from Missouri in 1899, and they visit her, and they find this woman living alone on the battlefield in an old house maintaining a Confederate cemetery. I mean, really, you, you couldn't make this stuff up. And, and she really does it mostly on her own, uh, with, with help, however, from her son, Winder, and this goes on for about a decade. But by 1902, 1903, she's, she's getting old and, and there's plenty of evidence that she has, I think, what was a... It was a mildly incapacitating stroke because pretty much after about 1903, she's not involved. George Cowan uh, steps in. George her- married their daughter, Hattie. George takes over pretty much all the correspondence from people he welcomes visitors etc and then carrie passes away in um february 1905 i would say what becomes of the cemetery i guess then after carrie's death i think that period is one of the most interesting from from this perspective this was so personal to them to john and carrie mcgavick and i think even to winder that they made no plans. People have asked, I know myself, I'm sure they've asked you many times, why didn't they remove the bloodstains? Or why didn't the Carters fix the bullet holes? I don't think it was ever, I don't think it ever crossed their mind. It was just so much a part of who they were. It was like putting a shirt on in the morning. And they never made any plans for the cemetery. They just probably assumed it would always be like this. It would just always be there. And so they died. John dies. Carrie dies, and then Winder dies. Hattie is married to George, but they don't live here. And it's Winder's widow, Susie Lee McGavick, who was very aware of what had gone on. I mean, she'd been married to to, to Winder for over 20 years. And I think she watched what her in-laws did, and I think she watched what her own husband did. And she lived here um, until... um, well, for some period of time after Wander died in 07. And it was really her. She was the one who, I think, started looking into the future and thinking that the cemetery had to be protected. Something might happen to the entire farm. Something might happen to the house. But the cemetery was wholly unique, and it had to be set aside. And so when she sold the property, she created this um, committee. And really what she helped set up was a a corporation in perpetuity. And this corporation is essentially a group of trustees. They are the ones that to this day own the cemetery uh, for the better part of, gosh, at this point, almost 90, 90 plus years. It's been maintained and cared for by the local United Daughters of the Confederacy Group. But it's the trustees that own it. 
And that was directly the result of Susie Lee McGavick, who, of course, wasn't a McGavick by blood. She just married into it. Same thing with George Cowan. Right, except he takes a different path. And, you know, I, I can't tell you what, what went on with, with George Cowan, except he was a veteran. And I think he, I know, th- I think he got a little too close to the story. And I think it um, it certainly manifested itself in different ways with him than it did with, with Susie. How... Just in size-wise, how does the McGavick Confederate Cemetery compare to some of the other Confederate cemeteries that exist? There is a private Confederate Cemetery in Knoxville that I think is slightly larger than this one, but I don't think that, you know, in in the case of, you know, which one's bigger, I don't know that it's terribly relevant. I think it's the most unique Confederate Cemetery in America because the dead, except for a handful of veterans— Marcellus Cuppet and a Confederate general who were moved here after the war. They're all from one battle. They're all from one event. They all went into this together. They all died here. They were all maintained and cared for by one family. And uh, I just think it's, I think it's the most unique Confederate cemetery in the entire country. There's nothing else like it. There are certainly, if you go to Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond, it's much larger. You know, you can go to small, quiet Confederate cemeteries out in, you know, rural this place or that place that have 15 or 20 people. This one's different. This And this one's, I think, as different as the battle itself. And maybe, maybe that's why the McGavocks thought they had to do it. There have been many times when I've walked in that cemetery and thought, when one considers the absolutely violent nature by which most of those men died at this stage of the war, it is altogether fitting that they are buried in a nice, quiet place. In this time where Confederate symbols and Confederate iconography can be looked at as very controversial, I feel like the Confederate cemetery here has largely escaped any protests or any, any nobody's, nobody seemed to be offended by the fact that there's a Confederate cemetery here. Do you think that Confederate cemeteries are looked at differently than other symbols of the Confederacy. Yes, absolutely. And do you think they should be looked at differently? Yes, absolutely. They're a cemetery. They serve a particular purpose. They were not put up for any reason other than it was a place for the dead to rest. I walked through a Confederate cemetery recently in Mobile, and most of the men buried there were defending Mobile or had been wounded at places like Vicksburg, there is no place more appropriate to see Confederate symbols than in a cemetery. And I think that it has, uh, like, like the one here, has evaded any sort of, you know, confrontation or... Co- it's avoided any sort of controversy because there's nothing controversial about it. The debate that we're having is about Confederate symbols in the public space. Is there anything I want to add about why it's so important that we continue to maintain the cemetery and tell these men's stories, even, you know, 150 years later? That's a tough one. See, I think a lot of people, take for example if you're a descendant, so you have a very visceral connection to someone buried there. Then you have someone who has no connection, and they have a, you know, sort of cursory interest in history. 
could just be another cemetery. But the men who are buried there are... They are... How do I want to put this? The, the, the men who are buried there were the products of their time. And they come from a wide background. And there are a lot of, frankly, interesting stories out there. There are a lot of very compelling stories. And I think all of us should um, occasionally ask ourselves, if we were one of them in 1861, what would we have done? And I think that should never be forgotten. Because if you were from Mississippi or Texas or Alabama in 1861, you were terribly afraid that everything you knew was about to change. And there's still something to be learned from those men. Even, even though they were killed in this battle late in the war, there's still something to be learned. There's something to be learned from uh, Robert Capel, whose father Eli owned 400 slaves. There's something to be learned from the man whose father owned no slaves, which would be the vast majority of the men out there. There's something to be learned from the man in the Mississippi section who believed that he was a martyr. There's something to be learned from Franklin Hale in the Tennessee section who was shot by his own men accidentally, friendly fire, near the Carter House. There's, there's stories all over. There's stories to be learned from somebody like Marcellus Cuppet, who's not even one of the soldiers. Why does a man like that do it? They were people of their time. But I think the same thing could be said if you walk through the National Cemetery in Murfreesboro or Nashville. You know, they were the products of their time, too. Those two men were ultimately, those two groups of men were ultimately drawn into a struggle about what the future of America was going to be. And that's probably the most important thing to never forget, is they were the ones that ultimately paid the cost. Um, and that's, you know, probably more than anything why, should, why we should never forget it. If I could ask one last question... Because I want to also have this be a, a way to wrap up Carrie and John's story. What do you think is their legacy? The legacy of the McGavick family who lived here? How should we look back on their contributions to all this? Well, I, there's maybe two ways to look at it. If there had not been a Battle of Franklin, we probably would not really uh, remember the McGavicks at all. Carnton might have been lost. Somebody might still be living in it. I think the McGavick's real legacy is the cemetery. That is their, that's their legacy. That was their, that was their contribution to the future. And through the years, I've come to learn that I think cemeteries are much more for the living than they are for the dead. The McGavicks decided to give the dead a proper burial place, but that cemetery was meant to last into the future. That cemetery, like others, still tells us something today. It tells us about the men. It tells us about the event. And then it tells us about the people who made it happen. It tells us about the McGavicks, and it tells us about the Cuppets. It's always struck me that there were about six people who were really responsible for making that happen. Two McGavicks, three Cuppets, and a man whose last name was Sloan. Those six people made it happen. They are as important as the men who were buried there. Because without those six people... Nobody would remember those men the way they're remembered today.
So that concludes the story of the formation of the McGavick Confederate Cemetery, but we are not quite done with the story of Carnton. In two weeks, we'll be joined by James and Beth, two of our co-workers here, and we'll discuss what happened to the site in the 19th century. One thing we would like to promote is the Big Payback, which is a way for those who live in Williamson County or who conduct business in Williamson County to give back to nonprofits that they find beneficial. If you stay tuned to our Facebook pages, Carter House and Carnton, you can find information about how you can contribute on May 2nd, 2019. Also, this summer, we have our summer history camp for kids, ages 8 to 12. It's in June, July. It's a great way for kids to come to Carhouse and Carnton, learn about the Civil War, the Battle of Franklin, and really just all life of all people here in the 1800s in Tennessee. And information for that can be found at boft.org slash summer camp. Thank you so much for listening. See you in two weeks. <laughs>